This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. This is the summer series for Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio, where we bring you the best shows of 2017. For more information, head to bze.org.au or if you're listening through 3CR 8.55am, please don't touch that dial. Enjoy the program. Good evening, listeners, and salut, Babette. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and the team tonight is Andy, Kurt, and me, Vivian Langford. It's all about seaweed. The hope is that kelp and seaweed will sequester a lot of carbon, but one of the threats that is out there lurking is oil drilling. We've got Dr. Alicia Belgrove from Deakin University School of Life and Environment Scientists, and her field is phycology, which is a new word for me, but it's the study of algae. And she appeared on Tim Flannery's Catalyst show, so we'll speak to him next week. And then we have journalist Jane Hammond. Her film is called A Crude Injustice, and it shows what happens to seaweed farmers in West Timor after the Montara oil spill. Then we've got Greenpeace Ocean campaigner Nathaniel Pell, or Pele, I think his name is. Think of the footballer. He's leading a project to prevent new oil drilling in the Great Australian Bight. This is home to kelp forests and the most biodiverse marine system in Australia. Opening up a new oil field in the Bight is like opening up the Galilee for Adani's new coal mine. It's a race against time until ecocide is a crime. So now over to Kurt. Uh, thank you, Vivian. Uh, so right now I'll be joined by uh, Dr. Alicia Belgrove, who is the Senior Lecturer at Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Uh, she has published papers like Can Microalgae Com- Contribute to Blue Carbon? An Australian Perspective, and is Secretary of Asian Pacific uh, Phycological Association, which, as we know now, phycological is the study of algae. Dr. Belgrave, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, so I, I first became interested in blue carbon through a friend of mine who works at your university. Uh, we had PhD candidate Quinn Oliver on the show a few months ago, and he explained to us that the capabilities of mangrove swamps and seaweed to sequester carbon from the atmosphere, um, and I remember being very, very blown away by the federal government failing to accurately figure the sequestering, sequestering potential of blue carbon uh, into their um, carbon uh, equations. Um, are, are they beginning to realise uh, in Australia the capabilities of blue carbon? I think on a global scale it, it's pretty slow to uptake. I mean the, it's a relatively new area of research and um, I think generally governments around the world are, are still on the back foot in terms of uh, being able to ad- adequately account for blue carbon sinks in, in carbon budgeting for example. Right. Now, you're working on a program to farm, a pilot program to farm seaweed in uh, the Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne. Can you explain uh, what this project is about? Sure. Uh, we're working with mussel farmers um, in Port Phillip Bay through the Victorian Shellfish Hatchery and the consortium there. And uh, we're 
interested in trying to work out the um, the conditions under which we need to create suitable farming practices for a particular species of seaweed um, called crayweed. So we're trying to farm this uh, for principally for two purposes in the first place. So our, our mussel farmers are interested in diversifying their stock for producing seaweed for human and, and animal feed and so that also includes the possibility to ocean finish abalone by feeding them um, crayweed. Okay. Are we? Uh, is is there much investigation into um, the 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 carb the ability for these seaweed farms to uh, sequester carbon, or is it primarily looking at just the, the the shellfish? So at this stage, we're not quite up to that capacity because uh, at the moment we're still at the early stages of trying to work out how to actually grow these things. Yep. And but. That's certainly something to consider, and, and I guess more broadly, um, I've been involved with research across the Asia Pacific region. So the the Asian Pacific Psychological Association that you mentioned that yeah. I'm secretary of, there's a, um, a network group within that that's focusing on um, carbon dioxide sequestration or, or capture and, and potential mitigation through um, seaweed farming across the Asian Pacific region. So. It is something that's on the radar uh, in terms of actually being at the point that we have data for the Australian species that we're looking to culture. It's still a work in progress. Okay. And what, what what's the timeline for this project so far? Um, so the, we've actually got a, a PhD student, Erin Cumming, that's working on this particular project trying to bring crayweed into aquaculture. And so she's um, getting close. To, she's looking at putting her first lot of seaweed babies out to sea hopefully this week and then with some additional trials coming up over the next couple of weeks and so that will be the test to see whether we can actually get it get it growing in the in the mussel farms um, as we hope to do so um, but of course when we're talking about mus- um, seaweed farming for carbon sequestration yeah. there's, there's a couple of things that you need to consider so firstly we know that seaweeds are great at capturing carbon dioxide and so they will they grow rapidly they have high primary productivity um, high rates of primary production and so they're Drawing down carbon dioxide rapidly and con- and and converting that to seaweed biomass, mm-hmm. and we know that as they grow, they do that very efficiently. And um, you know, whilst there's difference amongst different species, generally speaking, the large brown kelp type seaweeds are, are very good at doing that. Yeah. But whether that carbon gets sequestered over long time periods totally depends on what you do with it. So we talk about short-term um, carbon capture and then long-term sequestration. So for sequestration to happen, mm. it needs to be locked up over millennia. And so if we're, for example, farming seaweed for the purpose of producing food, yeah. then we're drawing down the carbon dioxide mm-hmm. from the atmosphere, we're taking that carbon out of the water, but then we're uh, if we're eating that seaweed or feeding that seaweed to other animals, it's essentially being um, recycled and and ultimately going back into the atmosphere. So yeah. when we're looking at carbon sequestration for, uh, um, sorry, long-term carbon sequestration, it depends very much on what the end use of the seaweed is. Okay. And um, 
it's 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 very much about scale, isn't it? This these the future of this seaweed farm in terms of uh, it's it's it has to be done on a very very large scale for us to pull down enough carbon, but also the investigation into the amount of time and uh, require the the ability for it to for this carbon which is taken out in the seaweed to go um, to, to get below a particular level so that the carbon stays there. I'm, yep. The one thing that I'm conscious of is that when humans embark on projects of such massive scale like for dams or geoengineering, um, there's there's usually unseen environmental costs that only become evident uh, a few decades down the track. Um, is there any issues that you're seeing with seaweed that may have a negative impact, for example, on sea life trying to exist below that, that surface level of, of seaweed? Yeah, uh, look, that's a really important question and it's a, it's a concern that I share. So I think there's huge potential for um, carbon sequestration by seaweeds and but the idea of um, basically growing it and dumping it at, at um, depths below a thousand meters so that it's essentially mm. locked up for for long periods of time and um, you know over millennia totally depends on um, understanding the impacts that that might have and so at this point in time we really have no idea about that 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 research isn't being done at this point yeah. uh, but it's something that needs to seriously be considered and I think we need to think about that in advance rather than, as you say, um, jump into this opportunity and then a few years down the track think, oh, actually, that wasn't such a crash shot idea because we've just killed all these deep sea yeah. ecosystems. Now, that may or may not happen, um, but as you say, there are lots of um, possible scenarios that could come out of it and we need to do the research, the ecological yeah. research to understand those impacts before we launch into a hammer and tongs. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's precisely the point that I was making on the Catalyst um, documentary with Tim Flannery. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so I'm originally from Sydney and when I arrived here about a year ago, uh, we had all these big, these massive rainstorms and I was kind of grossed out by warnings not to go swimming because of all the dog waste and the rubbish that had been swept into the bay. Mm. Uh, now obviously this includes kind of Port Phillip Bay where you're mm. growing, uh, having kind of pilot, this pilot program for seaweed farming is. Um, how is this, are the seaweed farms reacting to the city runoffs? Yeah, look, that's another important question. And, I mean, obviously nutrients feed seaweed. They, if they've elevated nutrients, they'll, they'll grow faster. Um, but And some species will grow faster than others. And so understanding the influence of anthropogenic inputs of nutrients to the seaweed growth is really important. The problem, and, and the, the nutrients themselves are not a problem. And even if it's dog poo, dog poo is ultimately nutrients, and mm -hmm. that's potentially a good thing for seaweed growth. Um, the problem comes that it's generally not just nutrients that are coming into our waterways. There's often all sorts of other rubbish coming in. Yeah. And that might include um, dioxins and furans being washed off buildings from car exhaust and being yeah. washed in with stormwater into the bay. It might include heavy metals coming in through various um, industrial inputs. And these are huge concerns, mm -hmm. and they're not ones that we're taking lightly. So at this point in time, we're trying to work out how to grow the seaweed in Port Phillip Bay. Yep. But whether that seaweed is suitable for human consumption or not requires a series of yep. um, carefully 
um, planned experiments to actually test for potential contamination. So we're, we're actually doing that work at the same time. Okay. And, of course, the uh, the type of runoff that goes off and the, the uh, amount of nutrients is also dependent on the amount of land clearing, which has an uh, on the land directly uh, next to it. Yep. And um, that also has an impact on climate change as well. Um, so... Uh, that, what I really love when I talk to scientists about any that are, that are studying any kind of biodiversity in Australia is that you always see their eyes light up and they get always always get excited because Australia in particular is very unique uh, in, in regards to almost any type of biodiversity. Does this extend to seaweed? Absolutely. So we're in a global hotspot of biodiversity in southeastern Australia. We have more species of seaweed in southeastern Australia than there is in any other region on Earth. And of those species of seaweed, uh, we have the highest levels of endemism. So about somewhere around the order of 60% of our seaweeds don't occur anywhere else in the world. So we've got a really incredibly diverse and incredibly unique seaweed flora in southeastern Australia. So that's both exciting from a seaweed aquaculture perspective in that you know, it opens up the opportunity for or the possibility of finding new uh, exciting species that are good to eat, um, nutritionally mm-hmm. rich, but also potentially have a whole range of other commercial applications. Um, but it also poses a challenge because it means in most cases we're starting from scratch in terms of working out how to grow them. So, for example, the species that are um, grown most commonly in across Asia yep. are all northern hemisphere focused species and okay. the only species that we have amongst those is the Japanese kelp the wakame or andaria that's been introduced to Port Phillip Bay and, and other places right. um, around the world but of course in in our waters it's um, an invasive species and right. at, at least at this point in time there's no possibility to actually farm that um due to you know, environmental concerns of spread. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it is possible to, there are some licenses for harvesting stuff that um, colonises by itself, mm-hmm. but there's no licence in Australian waters at this point in time for actually growing it, purposefully growing it on um, aquaculture lines, for example. Okay. So I have a bit of a strange last question. I have uh, three younger sisters that I used to go to the beach with every summer when I was in uh, New South Wales, and I used to throw seaweed at them to freak them out. Mm. Uh, most people think... Common Australian pasta. Yeah. Most people think I'm probably too old to behave like this, but I'm not. So for future summer holidays, which is the <laughs> slimiest seaweed? That's a good question. Well, the slime is generally related to the fucoidins and the alginates yeah. that are components of the cell walls of brown algae. Okay. So generally, it's the brown algae that will be the slimiest. Okay. And um, <laughs> probably leatherweed, bull kelp, and crayweed would most likely be the ones that would be in the um, your top contenders that are readily available. Great. Thank you so much for that. I'll keep an eye out for the brown stuff next time I'm at the beach. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so is there any kind of, uh, if people want to track, I had a little bit of trouble finding the any kind of uh, publications about the performance of um, this, this seaweed pilot, pilot project. Is there some place on the web that our listeners could look it up? Of the um, seaweed 
farming in Port Phillip. Yes, yes. Yeah, we haven't actually, so it's still a work in progress. We haven't actually published any of that work at this stage, uh, but that will be coming out over the next um, year to 18 months. Okay. As those trials come to fruition. Okay, and um, so we're currently working on the first um, the first paper from that series, but there'll be a series of three or four papers coming out about that. that okay, the project from out of Aaron's PhD work. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the program, Dr. Belgrove. No worries. Thanks very much for having me, Kurt. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emission Show, listeners. Our next guest is from Perth. Uh, Jane Hammond is a filmmaker, and she's on the phone from Perth, and I'd like to ask her about her film. How are you, Jane? Hi, good, thanks. First of all, tell us what the weather's like out in Perth. It's been beautiful the last few days, but it looks like we've got some rain on the way. We thought uh, winter was over, but it's coming back. Uh, it's still very much winter here in Melbourne, though lots of spring in the flowers. Um, look, your film, I haven't seen it yet, but I imagine it really begins with the explosion at the Montara oil spill eight years ago. Can you tell us what happened on that rig? Okay, on the 21st of August 2009, uh, there was a blowout in the Montara oil well um, of the um, the H1 well, which uh, basically uh, there'd been a, some movement above. Uh, the um, oil workers had moved the rig to a slightly different place, closed up the well, and um, uh, but th- things went quite awry. And basically what happened was that there was a blowout that caused um, oil to spew into the sea for the next 70 days into the Timor mm-hmm. Sea. Uh, fortunately, there were... Um, 69 people on board and they all got away without any loss of life Mm. Um, but the rig was left basically the stricken rig was just left there in the ocean spewing out this oil while they worked at various technical ways to get um, to plug the hole. Yeah, it's a horrific scene and I think listeners are probably more familiar with the one that happened in the Mexican Gulf. You know, we know that deep horizon and we think of that and I think maybe because the oil didn't move to the Australian coast and affect us, it just moved out to sea and as we were told, their narrative is it didn't affect anybody. But tell us about the seaweed farmers who you met who are presently bringing a class action through uh, Morris Blackburn lawyers to the federal government. Yeah. Yeah, the rig was sitting halfway between the West Australian coast and the island of Roti in West Timor, um, which is essentially our nearest neighbour. Um, it was actually slightly closer to uh, Roti than it was to um, the Australian coastline, even though it was in Australian waters. So when the oil uh, spewed into the sea... It drifted with the currents, and, and um, soon after the soon after it started, the Australian government started spraying toxic dispersants onto the slick to basically send it uh, further, break it break it up into uh, little colloidal sort of balls, and send yeah. it uh, further in, off the surface and, and underneath. So all that toxic um, muck uh, basically mixed with the oil and uh, and went somewhere, and no one quite knows exactly where it went. Um, but the anecdotal evidence and very strong anecdotal evidence coming out of West Timor was that soon after uh, the rig blew, uh, the seaweed farmers started to notice a drop-off in their crops and their seaweed became infected with a, a strange white sort of uh, porridge-like uh, look and 
basically fell to the ocean floor dead. Mm. Uh, and the, the um, industry has it's still not fully recovered eight years down the track. Right. Well, look, before 2009, this seaweed business was a thriving thing. Could you tell us how the AusAid helped it along a bit and why? I mean, I, I first thought it was only a few farmers, but there's a quite a great number, 15,000, I think, in the class action, so it must have been a big thing. How did AusAid help them? Yeah, the, it was an emerging industry that the Australian government came through its development sort of um, aid um, funds, ca- came on board to uh, push the industry um, and really make sure that it, it did quite well, and that was succeeding. It, it had only been going for, I think, maybe eight years. I can't quite remember mm. exactly when it started, but it, it was um, developing into a good alternative income that a lot of people could get on board with. They, you don't need much in the way of technology. You um, basically string uh, rope from the ocean floor um, and tie bits of um, seaweed on that then grow out so you get these long strands. Um, and the, the top of the, the rope is um, lifted up with an old water bottle sort of thing. Mm. So you, you, it was a very... Um, uh, accessible industry, although the ropes did, you know, they did cost some money, but the, those who, who could invested and whole villages were getting on board with this um, simple, clean and uh, quite lucrative industry that they called green gold yeah, in what, the area. Well, I, I just think it's terrible because, like, our programs about climate change and um, seaweed, as we've recently learned more generally, is, is a good way of sequestering carbon. Seaweed and also mangroves, they sequester more carbon than on land um, types of plants. And I would imagine that even we could have got uh, carbon credits, carbon offsets for that sequestered carbon. And um, meanwhile, um, uh, is, was there any point where the, I wonder where that oil company could have been put out of business for its negligence and, and destroying this um, burgeoning industry? Yeah, the company has always claimed, and it continues to claim to this day, that it was not responsible for the loss of seaweed farm. Um, it says that it, that it doesn't deny that um, there was a failure in the um, in the industry at the time that seemed to coincide very strongly with the start of the uh, oil and where that ended up and the use of the dispersants. Um, but it says there were other environmental factors. That's what it claims. But uh, those factors have never been uh, quite... Um, Explained, and and neither has the fact that it, you know, the the industry has not recovered. It, it's just starting to now, but nothing like the harvest prior to this incident. Mm. And and in the before uh, the Montara disaster, the communities were really starting to lift themselves out of poverty on the back of this quite uh, lucrative industry and the clean waters that uh, that it was growing growing in. Uh, so we started to see people being able to send their kids to university for the first time and and the communities were very proud of this. They could see the value in education and the fact that their kids maybe didn't have to live in a subsistence way if they could get enough money to, you know, educate them and give them a chance to to do something other than, um, you know, whatever was in the village, uh, fishing and, and now seaweed farming. So all that came unstuck. Mm. with this um, 
you know, in 2009 when something terribly wrong happened. Well, you've mentioned that the seaweed's hardly recovered even till this day, and though it is a little bit, but what about the people's health? You've, I think you mentioned that they start to have rashes, and I imagine their mental health must have, have suffered too from this huge setback. Yeah, the, the, um, there's something strange, very strange in the water there. Um, with people and whole villages, when they have contact with the sea, coming out with these itchy sores. They're, you know, I've, I've, I've shot it on film. They're scratching everywhere you go. Everybody's scratching. And this was a fairly recent thing. It wasn't something that uh, the villagers had experienced before and it wasn't something that uh, the medical authorities knew really what was happening. And you, you see people with great big blotchy red sores. Now, it's quite interesting in, um, the research that's come out of the United States in the Gulf of Mexico, which happened 10 months after this incident, and similar dispersants were used to break up the slick there. And we've seen quite a number of, um, you know, research studies and individuals who have been impacted by contact with the dispersants. So these dispersants make oil 52 times more toxic than in its its normal state. So you've sort of got a, a double whammy there. You've got dispersants that really shouldn't be sprayed in the open ocean uh, because they're too toxic and, um, and it's combining with oil that itself um, increases in toxicity with contact with this with these dispersants and then, uh, you know, nobody quite knowing where everything went, where those currents were taking uh, that oil and that dispersant, because there was no undersea monitoring, only flyovers, some, you know, spotters using their, using their eyes or relying on a little bit of satellite and looking for sheens and glimmers, but no undersea, um, you know, tracking of, of where currents might be going, where the colloidal suspended um, bits of toxic material were heading. Uh-huh. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of science wasn't done at the time that really, really should have been done. This is terrible. We've just had a, a seaweed scientist just speaking before you and she was talking about the radical sort of testing they'd have to do about seaweed that we might grow in Port Phillip Bay that could be edible and, you know, how important it would be to get it exactly right. And they would be testing the whole water column to see what was dissolved in there from Port Phillip Bay. So this is the same sort of thing. You wouldn't be just looking at the sheen on the top of the water or a little bit. I saw those photos with a sort of black oil slick. Well, you wouldn't be just saying, oh, the oil slick didn't exactly reach there on a photograph. There's, you know, these things are dissolved. It's, it's terrible. I think this is a real example of a crude injustice, the choice of words of your film, a crude injustice. It's very crude treatment, isn't it, of the whole tragedy, not really investigating it. And I dare say it's all going to come out in court now. Maybe there'll be more media coverage of it. When uh, Do you know what they're up to with this class action? Yeah, the class action was started last year, in August last year, launched after um, lawyers became involved, mostly uh, an individual lawyer, Greg Stilps, really took this, this um, case on. Um, and years down the track, you know, he was going and working up in, in the area on another case and kept on running into people saying, what are you going to do about this particular issue? And started investigating it. And from there, we now have this uh, class action that, when it was launched last year, was 200 million, and, it, and my understanding is much the, the 
the uh, class action is worth a lot more now. Um, and there's 15,500 people who have signed up as part of this um, class action. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, they're going through uh, the early stages of settling what um, what they're, you know, whether whether they're allowed to proceed because uh, with the statutes of limitations, uh, which are three years in the Northern Territory, and this was kind of um, a responsibility of the Northern Territory where this mm. happened. This is where the regulators were at the time. Mm. So they're really start trying to, um, the, the lawyers have put the case um, for the people that they didn't know that they had any recourse in the Australian court. They didn't really even understand where this had come from. Um, so, you know, these are people without internet um, and the things take a while to sort of sink in um, with in terms of getting the story across the you know, yeah. uh, uh, rigs exploded and, and oil and muck have come in, washed yeah. up on their shores. They didn't really know where it came from. So it took quite a while to establish uh, any understanding of what's going on in the environment. So um, that's, that's in the court at the moment. And uh, the people who are running the class action and the seaweed farmers themselves are hoping that the court will see that, um, you know, three years there is scope for... Um, uh, an extension of that uh, statute of limitation, well, and after if that once that is decided, then the court would then you know the proceedings will will get underway. But th- this could take years and years. And meanwhile, people are living you know in really quite destitute ways, scratching a living from um, a bit of corn grown here or there, and 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 what fish are left in the sea, and and uh, and what. Um, is left of the seaweed industry. So we've got kids that haven't been going to school for eight years because their parents haven't been able to afford to send them. So, we, you know, it's, it's really, it really, really is an injustice and, and needs, and the Australian government to come on board and start, um, you know, pushing for a resolution of this. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine it, the... Um, Indonesian governments got involved as well and I'm, I would think that the company eventually is the one who's culpable. Is that what it's going to be, that they may have to settle out of court or pay a big amount? Yes, it's the, I mean, depending on how the court goes, but if, if the company said, okay, we, we understand that this does seem to be more than a coincidence, if they would admit um, some liability and, and settle out of court, I think that would be uh, give, give these people a chance to get on with their lives and, and rebuild. Um, so whether they do that, I don't know. Um, and whether the government, the Australian government, as the people who put, you know, were responsible for putting the dispersants on the water, were responsible for giving out the leases and, and failed dismally um, in their responsibility in terms of regulating this industry and this company in particular... If um, then you know Australia has a case to answer as well, but the class action is against the Thai-based company mm-hmm. PTTEP, which I have to add has uh, multiple leases in Australian waters and and has been allowed to continue to operate. Oh, wow. Well, look, just on another note, when I saw Tim Flannery um, speaking on Catalyst about potentially, you know, for carbon sequestration, having these massive seaweed farms out on international waters, out in the deep seas, I thought, oh, what could go wrong? And I wonder, how do you think seaweed farms could be protected from oil spills and other pollution if we're going to perhaps depend on it so much in the future? 
Well, the, we would one one would hope that um uh, you know that that there's better regulation, and I think after Montara, um, the industry was you know shaken a little bit. I think there's some good operators who wouldn't allow this ever to happen, and there's operators who you know aren't aren't quite so careful. So we would hope that nothing like this ever happens again. But there, you know, there's obviously the potential um, for this kind of a disaster to happen. But let's hope that the Australian authorities, when we talk about Australian waters, are are more awake to what's happening, and that the companies cross their T's and dot their I's. I mean, this PTTP, the company we're talking about here, they were recently told to lift their game at this in the Montara field because they'd tried to go back and uh, drill. And they'd been, uh, you know, they, they hadn't got the uh, contingency plans all signed and, and, and ready. They hadn't done their environmental uh, reports. And the Australian authorities said, oi, you know, you're not getting, your, you're not getting the tick off. They've, they've since got it. But it's, you know, it, it's down. Most people, I, I do believe, that um, company that was responsible for Australia's biggest oil disaster offshore oil disasters can just eight years down the track um, still be called up and called to account. You know, they what did they learn? And if they haven't had to pay any big fines, the most they've paid is $500,000 or $510,000, I think it was, for breaching regulations. Mm-hmm. They haven't had to pay millions and millions of dollars out to the people they've impacted. So I don't think they've learned to their lesson. So, um, yeah, if, if we can um, make sure that, uh, you know, that we can re-regulate this industry, um, which is a dying industry, no doubt, anyway, it's not going to last forever. If we can make sure we regulate it properly, then, you know, maybe these seaweed farms are, you know, like you say, will be a good thing. Yeah. But the ones in West Timor were very much more subsistence, you know, that were, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're done not in the deep sea, they're done from no. the shore, and, and they're, small, they're small farmers, who are making a living? They're not, you know, it's not some big company, um, um, you know, getting a carbon farming. These are people making a living and quite a good living of uh, growing seaweed in the in their local waters, walking out on the reefs and plucking it off and mm. um, bringing it back in little dugout canoes, um, but making enough money to send their kids from to university. So it's quite a, it, it's a nice. Um, fairly environmentally friendly that I can see um, uh, industry. Yeah. And it's it, such it, an important it's an important story. I'm really looking forward to seeing your film. I think it's uh, kind of one of these um, <clears throat> lines in the sand sort of story and lucky, it's terrible what's happened to them but lucky there were people who were impacted who we can therefore say this was not a non-event and that's what I'm worried in the deep sea kind of kelp fishing if they did that on a massive scale there wouldn't be anyone to see it or prove it or take anyone to court about it and it's pathetic that the village people have to take a big company to court but really I think the laws have to be in place here before you even get a licence to drill and as you say I hope it's a dying industry and there won't be too much more of that drilling and that's what our next guest is going to speak about but thank you so much for making your film I'd love listeners to be able to get a DVD or see it can you tell us um, how that is possible? Yes, it's just it's just been released, and, and I'm an independent filmmaker, so distributing it is a is a bit of an issue. Um, so what I've had so far is a um, a release in in Perth on the twenty first on the eighth 
anniversary. So the 21st yeah. of August, we, we released it. But in um, Melbourne, where can Melbourne it, people see it? Uh, yeah, we've, well, it, at the moment, it's going through the festival circuit. It's so far being uh, accepted on in four international festivals. So we oh, okay. sort of give it, we'll give it some time to run through that. And then I hope um, as soon as possible to get it, to take it to Melbourne, Sydney. Um, to get enough bums on seats to pay for the venue and to get the story out. Okay. Um, and, well, please uh, contact us when that happens because we'll, we'll talk yeah. about it again on air. Listeners will remember that. It's a terrific, important, terrifically important story. And, um, you know... Thank you very much. We'll, we hope, we'll hope it has good success. So thank you for making it. And the film, listeners, is called A Crude Injustice, and that was Jane Hammond. Thank you, Jane. Emery's... We uh, seaweed farmers. Now we're going to talk about the Great Australian Bite. We've got Nathaniel Pele. He's um, from Sydney. He's a Greenpeace's lead campaigner to prevent oil drilling in the Great Australian Bite down south from here. So welcome, Nathaniel. Hi, Vivian. Thanks for having me. I'm really delighted to um, for you to tell our listeners what you're doing down there because it's a, a campaign that they can perhaps get involved in. Um, we've heard about the Montara oil spill now, and I'd like to know why is Greenpeace campaigning in Australia's southern waters? Is the main fear uh, of more oil spills? Look, that's definitely the the most um, uh, critical uh, impact that the that the um uh, oil, oil drilling could have in the Great Australian Bight. Uh, we've, we've seen what happened in Montara and we've seen an even bigger disaster in the Gulf of Mexico uh, a few years ago. So uh, really the risk to the uh, the animals and the people who uh, live around um, the Great Australian Bight um, from an oil spill is um, pretty hard to fathom, in fact, um, pretty hard to, to predict uh, and, and to measure, but it would be um, would be catastrophic. Uh, it's not the only threat that comes from oil exploration. We know that um, seismic testing, this is the, the shooting of air cannons into the water uh, looking for the oil, uh, is incredibly damaging, not only to whales, that's what it's most famous for, but it also uh, damages crustacea like lobsters uh, and drives away the, uh, the plankton that all of the marine life survives on. Um, so there's a huge risk, uh, and of course there's the issue of climate change and um, really, whatever oil any of these companies were likely to find in the bite is unburnable if we are serious about our agreements under the, the Paris Agreement. Well, we're trying to make everybody serious about it. I don't think there are that many people who are serious about it just yet. Tell us about the kelp forests down there. Sure. Well, it's, 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 pretty, it's relatively unknown. Certainly, um, we've all heard of the Great Barrier Reef and we've heard about the biodiversity that uh, that lives there. It's, it's uh, an amazing uh, organism, and um, and you know, uh, um, and perhaps Australia's most famous um, uh, environmental treasure. But the Great Southern Reef, which uh, runs along the southern coastline from from WA to New South Wales, um, is is bigger and in fact more biodiverse. It's made of kelp forests and and coastal reefs. Uh, it's not your uh, colourful tropical forests that are that are most famous. Um, but it supports more diversity of marine life. In fact, in the Great Australian Bight, 85% of the marine life that lives there is endemic. It's found nowhere else on Earth. Uh, and it's also um, that biodiversity, that, that rich um, marine environment supports also uh, our biggest fisheries and, of course, the towns and all the people that rely on those fisheries. 
Yeah, we just heard Dr. Alicia Belgrove waxing lyrical about the uniqueness of the species of um, seaweed. I was, you know, amused really because I thought all seaweed was sort of the same, but no, she went really how wonderful and absolutely unique that is down there. I, I didn't even know about that reef really. I just thought there was just sea down to Antarctica. So good on you for telling us about it. Um, one idea um, I think Greenpeace has had is to extend the global area of marine reserves. It's sort of um, at the moment 1% and I think you want it to extend res- marine reserves to 40% of the ocean. What would that achieve? Look, it's, it's an ambitious target and, and um, perhaps what you've already covered is, is very hard to establish um, protection or any sort of management in uh, in international waters. So that um, that doubles the, uh, the, the difficulty of, of trying to get that much of world ocean protected. But look, that's what scientists say um, is necessary for, uh, for us to ensure that we can um, return uh, fish species and marine life back to a healthy state, back to a state before uh, the industrialization of the oceans, especially through fishing, um, caused so many fish stocks to, to decline. It's a tough ask. Um, we've seen in Australia that the debate around creating marine reserves uh, is fraught by um, disagreement between um, um, political sides and different industries that want to use the ocean. It's very difficult to get um, this level of, of protection. So um, we're focusing on some of the key areas around the world, uh, like Antarctica and the Arctic, um, that are that are so far a little bit protected, and protecting the the areas that are still pristine and still supporting um, life is is one of the priorities. But um, it's going to be difficult to get these sorts of marine parks in place. Uh, we know with um, with climate change, it's uh, more necessary than ever. Aside from industrial scale fishing. Um, climate change can impact on on marine life and the ability of marine ecosystems to support uh, fish. And, and one thing about marine reserves is that they help create refugia, refuges um, like um, kelp and, and seaweed beds that um, that um, give the marine life some resilience to to changing climate. Um, so it's really critical that we uh, get these sorts of protections in place. There are some marine parks in the Great Australian Bight. Um, but of course, um, oil spilling from a uh, from a burst oil well doesn't care about um, whatever borders we put in our marine parks. No. It, it would go anywhere. Look, um, Greenpeace is famous for its campaigns around sustainable fishing as well. And in terms of you know, we on this climate program, we often hear people say, "Look, it's." all futile because the world's population is going to explode. Well, I I don't go down that path really, but I know the population is expanding. And in terms of feeding that future population, do you think there's room for an expansion of aquaculture? Look, there certainly is if it's it's done right. I mean, there's there's a big difference between um, good aquaculture and aquaculture that um, is really damaging. And uh, we know... Perhaps one of the most famous um, um, types of, of, of marine life that, that we eat that comes from aquaculture is, is shrimp or prawns. And we in Australia get um, a good 60% of our prawns from overseas. They're, they're grown, um, they're, they're almost all from aquaculture. In fact, probably 100% from aquaculture in uh, Southeast Asia and, and China. Um, and um, to build these farms along the coastlines of Thailand and Vietnam, uh, Malaysia and China, they've removed um, um, millions of, of square kilometres of mangrove forest, and we know that mangrove forests are, 
uh, are critical to uh, ensuring that, that coastal uh, marine life uh, is sustained. Uh, and they're also a, a barrier against uh, the oceans and climate change. And when, when you take these um, uh, forests away, these mangrove forests away, um, we find that the impacts are felt um, back into the into the ocean for many kilometres as the fish no longer have places to breed and back onto land as the, as the uh, uh, environment declines mm. there. So it's a real risk. But, you know, some, some farmers in, in, in Australia, some aquaculture production uh, is done well. It's done... Um, in land-based ponds in Queensland, and um, they use, uh, they, in fact, they use um, kelp and, and seaweed um, ponds surrounding the, the prawn um, ponds to clean the water before it uh, finds its way back into the ecosystem. And you can do these things uh, correctly, but it costs a lot more, um, and you certainly can't do it and also expect to eat um, the really cheap seafood products that, yeah. that some of us want. But there's, there's, um, there's certainly some, some bright prospects in aquaculture, and we are going to have to take some of the pressure off the wild-caught fish. Yeah, well, the reason I ask you about what, what, uh, aquaculture is because in Tim Flannery's film on Catalyst, um, he, you know, he had this vision of huge carbon-sequestering farms out in international waters. They'd be aquaculture farms. Um, there wouldn't be wild um, seaweed or kelp. Um, but I wondered how it could be protected and what dangers do you see? You know a bit about the ocean and the seas. What are the laws governing that international, um, I think they call it the high seas. I imagine it's pretty much a free-for-all out there, isn't it? It, 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 is, it is somewhat. In, in, in terms of, I mean, it's what, so no, no laws exist for us to create marine reserves in, in the high seas at the moment. That's actually something that's uh, going through the United Nations, uh, a mechanism to, to try to create protected areas. Um, but otherwise, no, it, it is a free-for-all. We, we have the law of the sea. Uh, not every country in the world has signed up to the, uh, to the law of the sea. We have some, some good rules around dumping at sea. That's about the only thing we do have. Um, so the London Protocol you know, stops you leaving uh, rubbish in, in, in the ocean. Um, I think that probably the, the, that law would have something to say about creating floating uh, farms if there was any sort of structure out in the high seas. You, you might find there were some difficulties there. Um, Especially really, massive it's ones. It's an untested area. Yeah. Well, I, yes, I, especially massive ones. Yeah, I've read this book called Seasteading, which really got my nerves going. I, I didn't like it at all. I, I liked some of the ideas in it, but it seemed to have this libertarian idea that, oh, it's out on the international waters, we can do anything. And I imagine they could even employ slave labour or just do anything. And certainly... It is the global commons. This is the perfect thing, the global commons, isn't it, that ocean, to start... Um, doing it without any governance, doing any kind of work there, um, building or um, drilling or anything. I, I, I just feel, it makes me feel very nervous. It could go very badly wrong. Yeah, look, and, that, and, that's, and that's fair. If, if uh, unfortunately, if, if industry goes out to, to develop these sorts of um, projects, then um, they're going to have um, profit in mind, uh, first and foremost, of course. Um, so it needs to be conducted. Um, um, with some sort of oversight, some sort of oversight, and that needs to be an international oversight if it's international waters. Yeah. Um, so, you, so we want to avoid um, countries competing to be uh, the first to have uh, some sort of project out there when we haven't considered what the impacts are. And, and I just don't know. I don't know who, who has um, put that sort of research together. Uh, I don't know what it would involve creating 
uh, a giant um, kelp farm out in the in the high seas. I imagine there will be some sort of structure that would be uh, a hindrance to you know marine passage. Um, so there'd be some safety issues there. Mm. Um, but you know, if if you go and meddle on a on a large scale with the way ecosystems work, um, who knows what other sorts of uh, marine life are attracted to to see uh, to to kelp farms out in the open ocean, and does that disrupt? The rest of the ecosystem, yeah. there's, a, there's a whole lot they would have to take into account before yeah. allowing this sort of thing to go ahead. All right, well, look, just come back to your campaign about the oil, a more general question. I, I think having fossil fuels for countries like ours is really very paralyzing. You know, it's too, uh, too much of a temptation to exploit it. But I am confident that our economic system as a whole, the global economic system, will sort of push us back in sync with the environment it has to otherwise you know we can't go on our civilization will collapse but i notice even countries like norway which is much more climate active than us they still exploit the north sea oil and you know it's just a trap having fossil fuel you just have to exploit it i see i think that's our country's re- reason but i'd like to know what path do you see for the future to keep these fossil fuels deeply buried Sure. Look, it's interesting you mentioned Norway. It is, it is certainly a paradox. It's a country where um, they've put in place uh, legislation that will ban um, internal combustion engines um, within a decade from, from now, and yet they're one of the biggest producers of oil in the world, and, uh, and their privately owned, so their, their publicly owned company, Statoil, um, 70% owned by um, the Norwegian people, is one of the biggest oil companies in the world, and it's one of the companies with... Um, ambitions to drill in the Great Australian Bight. Oh, no. So, um, what will be interesting to watch is, in fact, today, Monday, in, in, in Norway is, uh, is the election, and oil uh, is, an, is a major issue there. Um, Greenpeace has just uh, confronted one of the northernmost oil rigs in the world in the Barents Sea in the Arctic, um, and thankfully that, that rig didn't find um, any oil, and hopefully it, hopefully it goes home and doesn't doesn't try to come back. But it's made it an, a, an election issue and um, parties in Norway are, are, are calling out the government. You can't uh, say you are, are for strong climate action uh, while you're continuing to fund exploration in completely new uh, environments. So, so this company from, from Norway is coming to Australia, it's going to, to South Africa to look for more oil. And, and <clears throat> again, as we know, if we are serious about the Paris Agreement, um, we can't afford to burn all of the oil reserves we know about already. So uh, it's impossible to hold um, a position that exploration um, uh, can go ahead when we know that about our reserves. Um, so we should we should definitely fight to make sure that the Great Australian Bight doesn't become a new um, oil basin. It's it's free of oil at the moment. There are no oil rigs down there. Um, but as soon as one uh, does succeed in, in striking oil, um, you can bet that others will come. And the more exploration that's going on, the more the more reserves they get, the harder it's going to be to wind back those those companies because um, because their financial interests are so big in, in keeping them open. Great, thank you very much. Um, one thing I like about Greenpeace, when people are you, listeners, if you ever join Greenpeace or get involved in their campaigns, you get very well informed, and um, you're involved in something that's moving, that's you know really taking action. So thank you very much, Nathaniel, for speaking to us today. 
It's, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Um, okay, just to finish, listeners, on another note, I have something I want to say. Today is September the 11th. And for me, it's the anniversary of the death of democracy in Chile. I was there just before President Allende was killed, and there's a tribute to him tonight at Trades Hall, if you can get there by 6.30. It seemed to me a very good model of a society, collaborative, participatory with the free media, at least compared to some of the other parts of South America, which were military dictatorships. It was the first place where neoliberalism triumphed and that good model was crushed. You might wonder what this has got to do with climate change. Well, I think climate change will force us to find an economic system that's not out of sync with the environment, as we've been hearing tonight, that is not fueling worse catastrophes every year, even though we've only caused one degree of warming so far. And it won't have a media that can't connect up the hurricanes in the USA and the floods in Bangladesh and India and Nepal, and they just call everything a natural disaster. No wonder people are confused. And in the blank space that they leave about the causes of climate change, we see a great proliferation of things on Twitter, a lot of people conflating earthquakes, cyclones and eclipses of the moon as if they're all, you know, somehow natural disasters. There will be signs, oh, this is uh, one of them I just read to you. I read a, a fatalistic comment that went wild on the internet and it said that we only had to look at the dates of the eclipse of the moon on the 21st, Hurricane Harvey on the 25th and the floods on the 26th to look up the Bible, Luke 21, 25, 26 and bingo, we found this text. I'll just quote from it. This was went really wild. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehension of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. I'd just like to say to you listeners, this is not a time to faint and be confused. We need to remember that humans are capable of seeing the causes of a, something that's going wrong and taking action to get rid of them. Just like the Victorians who worked out that cholera comes from tainted water and so they cleaned up their water supply. We can take radical action to phase out fossil fuels and get the sort of economic system that protects people. We also have to remember that we can work collaboratively, as in Allende's Chile, and we can and stop pretending that we have no collective capacity. Thank you very much, Viv. Uh, I'd really like to thank uh, Dr. Alicia Belgrove, who was on the show, uh, also Jane Hammond uh, and Nathaniel Pell. I'd like to thank Andy, who worked the desk, Viv, for all the wonderful interviews, and Terry for uh, his work online. Uh, my name's Kurt Johnson, and next up we are going to have a, uh, a, a story called All the Best, uh, which is called Lead Affected. And uh, please join, join us for that if you can. Thank you. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, 
zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio. That was a Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Summer Special where we take some of our favourite programmes from 2017. We'll leave you now with the sound of the lyrebird, made famous by imitating other bird calls and sounds that it hears in nature. See if you can pick up on any of the other bird calls that it's imitating and have a happy and safe holiday. <laughs>